Good morning. Welcome to Cultivate. If, uh, if you're new with us, it's glad to, we're glad to have you here. And if you're online, welcome as well. It's good to have you along as well. Uh, we are in week 13 of our series called Origins. This is the second to final week. Some would use the word penultimate, which means second to last. It's just a fancy word, but I like it. I might use it more often. We're in a series called Origins. We're looking at the first 11 chapters of Genesis, and today we're in chapter 11. But we're looking at this uh, story, this critical story, which turns out to be Israel's origin story. We're looking at this not just so you can get smarter, but so that we understand how to live today as God's people. How did we begin, and how does that influence who we are and how we understand God to be? We're learning who we are based on how the story begins. Um, we're also hosting a discussion on Zoom on Wednesday nights, and uh, you're free to join us for that as well. We're diving deeper into each of these topics. So uh, next week, we have a, a week between now and, and Easter. Uh, next week, what we're going to do is we're going to wrap up this entire series by doing a little bit of a recap and reflection on what we've learned so far. We're going to talk about the implications of the things that we've discussed through this series. What difference do these ideas make for maybe us as individuals and, and collectively as a church? And we're going to give extended space for uh, response and reflection uh, for all of us as well. Today, though, we have some work to do. It's kind of the last chapter of this uh, extended story. And we're looking at the Tower of Babel story, or at least what gets referred to as the Tower of of Babel. It happens in Genesis 11. It's just nine verses. Uh, I think we've got it on the screen. You're free to follow along in, in the Bibles under the seats or on your phone. This is what it says. Now, the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they, not, so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth and they stopped building the city. That is why it is called Babel. Because there, the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Several years ago, I was in Haiti. It wasn't my first time in Haiti, but uh, I'd been there quite a few times by that point. And I'd gone up with our team of people from Cultivate to the community of Shadrach that we were working with at the time. And we got to... Um, the place where the cars drop you off, and we were scheduled to go and meet with uh, some of the people from the community just a little ways away from where we parked. 
And we start walking along the paths. And I realize I've been here before. I know this section of the village. Um, we go down this little way and around one of the houses, and there's this little patio that is really beautiful, and there's a little stone wall around it, and you, from that little place, you can look out and see all the way down to St. Mark, the city at the bottom of the mountain, and the bay and the sea beyond it. It's just an incredible view. And I'm walking with my friend Francis, who's one of the leaders in the community, and um, I know about 12 words in Creole at this point, but I decide I'm going to leverage these 12 words for all they're worth because I wanted to connect with him over something. See, the reason I was familiar with that patio is because um, a few years before, that was where Jen and I had met with the Leadership Council for the first time before we started this whole journey with them as a kind of a partner community. And I remember sitting there on that wall among those people hearing their story. And it was incredibly profound and challenging and life-shaping for me. It's one of the moments of my life when, when I realized like something drastically changed in me and I would no longer be the same for having had this experience with them. I knew that, that for the next period of time, like our lives were going to be joined in some way, that we were going to be moving in a direction together. So Francis and I are walking through this patio. He was there, you know, just a couple years before. And I wanted to get his attention and tell him, like, do you remember that day? Do you remember having this, this conversation? And, and, and how so much has changed since then. I mean, their community had changed and we had changed. And I just remember wanting to connect so deeply with him and, the, and like my 12 Creole words just were not going to do it. And so I'm trying to, like, they're just not adding up. And he's like giving me the nod and like, come on, we got to go. And I'm like, he just, he doesn't get it. I'm frustrated. Like, I, I want to be, be able to connect with my friend. I want to be understood, but it's impossible. I don't know if you can relate to this experience. If you've ever had something similar where language was a barrier to communicating and connecting with another human. Where you wanted to be understood. You wanted to connect. You wanted to, to, to share and to be heard. But it just wasn't working. It's tempting when we have an experience like this to look for a culprit. To look for a scapegoat. To look for a person or an event to blame for our frustration. To say, aha! That's the reason why I feel this disconnection, this frustration. And when it comes to these types of language barrier moments, Christians have a ready scapegoat. And we just read the story, right? I think that's the reason I'm so frustrated. When we're doing that, it's not that our experience is telling us something that's untrue, but we implicitly, I think, realize the benefits that speaking the same language affords us. It gives us the ability to express ourselves and to be understood. And we wish that we could have this experience with everyone that we encounter, right? This is a very human desire. In other words, we, we see the benefits of everyone speaking the same language, but the drawbacks, the potential drawbacks to that 
reality are hidden from us. There are two sides of this coin, but we only see one of them. And we're going to get to why that is in a minute. Seeing the benefits without the, the, the drawbacks, it sort of leads us to this conclusion that the fact that the world has multiple languages is by its very nature bad. And because it's bad, because we're frustrated by it, the introduction of this idea must be bad too. It must be a curse or a punishment on us. There's no other way to see it. Why else would I be frustrated like this? I mean, because if the tower had never been attempted in this story, I would have been able to have that conversation with my friend on that patio in Haiti. There's this assumption, I think, that a universal language is a good idea gone wrong, and that in the end, God is going to somehow reverse languages altogether and sort of bring us back to, to unanimity, uniformity. One language, universally. This is what I want us to ask this morning. Is this event evidence that we are under a curse? That language and culture is bad? That God has hexed us by confusing our language? Or is there something else going on? Now, if you've been here, let's see, how many weeks? 13? You probably know the answer already. It shouldn't surprise you that there is always something else going on. But first, some good news. The good news that we proclaim today <clears throat> is that God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. His kingdom does not run on fear and scarcity, but on love and inclusion. When tribalism tempts us to believe that the world would be better if everyone was just like me, God's Spirit teaches us that diversity is a gift that reveals His beauty and protects the equality of all people. Friends, where do you need to receive this gift today? Alright, we're going to ask two questions of the text this morning. What's really happening and why does God intervene? What's happening and why does God intervene? What's happening in this story? Well, uh, verse 4 is kind of the key to what's happening in this story. The people that are building this city say, come, let's build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we can make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth. So they want a name and they want not to be scattered. And so they build this city, this great city. And part of this city is this tower that reaches to the heavens. In Hebrew, it's the same word for the word sky. It's really tall. And the reason that they undertake this project, again, is because they want to make a name for themselves and they want to keep from being scattered over the whole earth. In other words, they want a name which is evidence of their need for significance. And they want, they, they want to consolidate their resources. They don't want to be broken up, scattered to the wind. They want security. If these two things sound familiar to you, it's because they've popped up in the story again and again and again and again. This is part of the evidence of the sickness of our sin. Remember that, that sin is grasping for our needs in ways that we were not designed to have those needs met. We're motivated by a mistrust of God. We can't 
We can't entrust ourselves to Him and to each other to provide those needs, and so we go looking for them in ways that end up destroying us and destroying other people. Significance and security are just two of those ways. They're two of those needs. And we see them popping up here again. So here's the question. Like, if, if this is what they're after, if they want significant, significance and security, why in the world would you build a tower? How does that get you what you're after? See, I think we have this assumption that the reason that they build a tower is to get to heaven. Right? It's to go to God. But I think that misses the point. We've already said that this city that they're building is in the region of Shinar. That region happens to be in a plain that's between the Tigris and the Euphrates River, modern-day Iraq. And it turns out that towers like this were commonplace in ancient Near Eastern cultures in that region of the world. They tend not to go by the name tower. They tend to go by the name ziggurat. The description of what's happening in Genesis 11 is the construction of a Mesopotamian ziggurat. It might be good for us to know what a ziggurat is and what they're for, right? I mean, that seems crucial to the story. Because none of us grew up in ancient Near East, right? I didn't... Any? No? Okay. Good. No one's 3,000 years old. So this is what one looks like. This is the great ziggurat of Ur in modern-day Iraq, not far from the plain of Shinar. It was restored not too long ago, actually. You can go and see it if you want to. It still looks pretty much like this. What do you notice about this picture? <laughs> well, if you wanted to look up a picture of what it, an artistic rendering of what it looked like in antiquity, this would actually be covered with shrubbery, greenery, flowers. What else do you notice? What's the main feature of this thing? An enormous staircase. On the top, this would have kept going up to kind of a small platform. And on that small platform, there would have been essentially a bedroom for one of the gods. There's a little canopy. There's a nice bed. There's a little table. It's got some food on it. Priests have made a sacrifice. They're hoping that this will entice the gods to come and live on the top of this ziggurat, and maybe if they're impressed enough, they will walk down this staircase and meet with them. See, the top of the ziggurat is too small for people to go up to. There isn't enough room for everybody up there. This thing was not constructed for people to get to heaven. It is a staircase for the gods to come down to earth. But to quote a very old movie, if you build it, they will come. Yeah. There are no chambers, no rooms. It's not, a, it's not an Egyptian pyramid. It's not meant to bury a king. It has one function and one function only to serve as a lightning rod to direct the God's activity into your city. And this is because the, what are these people doing? They're building. They wanted to, to have for themselves a powerful city. This is how ziggurats worked. And this is how it relates to their desire for significance and security. They want a powerful city. They want to be a military superpower. They want an empire. They want to be a dominant nation that couldn't be toppled or rivaled. 
And the best way to go about doing that in their day and time was to get divine approval for your project. Not only are we a great nation, but we've got God on our side. This is why you build a ziggurat. Remember when I said there are two sides to the coin of language? Language fits into this story because while we think of everyone having the same language as a good thing, in ancient Near Eastern culture, language was used as, as a force to, to impose a great nation's will upon lesser peoples. It's a, it's a move of colonization. It's how you assimilate and unify people that are different, unlike you, into your greatness. It was used to dominate and unify conquered people. So, if you're Israel, who is a smaller, weaker people group, one language does not signify to you peace on earth. It means control, subjugation, slavery. It means having your language and your history stripped away. It means being made to conform. God isn't threatened because He's afraid that people are going to ascend that staircase and take heaven by force. He's not worried that people might reach heaven on their own terms. He knows that this, this search for significance and security, apart from His presence, it poses a threat to vulnerable people. That it's based in fear and scarcity that inevitably leads to the degradation and the dehumanization of others. It's not good. It's not the way God designed the world to work. It's not good for those that are on the receiving end of it. And it's not good for those who do it to others. It's part of that war bow mentality that God hung up in the sky in the last story. He's done with it. And He wants His humans to be done with it too. The story isn't a scapegoat for our frustration and not being able to talk with people of different languages. It's just not why it was written. It's a parable that tells the truth about our condition. That when we are left to our own devices, we will unify under banners. Banners like language, race, nationality that end up elevating some at the expense of others and we will seek divine approval to get away with these shenanigans. This is what it means to take the Lord's name in vain, by the way. It's to take His, His likeness and apply it to evil demonic ideas. I said this 13 weeks ago, but nations and empires are experts at this type of pressure to assimilate to the norms of the society. Babylon was fantastic at it. Rome, even better. You know who also was good at it? The United States. We perfected it. This move towards uniformity. And just like Babel, America claims that this uniformity is done in the name of God. I mean, we've got God's name on our Constitution and our money. I mean, come on. If He hasn't blessed this thing, who has? This kind of um, conformity is, um, is how nationalism works. And nationalism is really just tribalism on a national scale. Tribalism says, my group against yours. My ways above yours. My language over yours. 
and that there's room for you here so long as you become like me. It's the story of Babel, and it's the story of every empire since. Now, here's, here's the Hebrew irony. Remember we talked about this, this concept of Hebrew irony? That it pops up again and again throughout the story? The, the word Babel here is meant to symbolize for Israel the nation of Babylon, which was the greatest nation that they ever came into contact with. It was the superpower. It was the empire. It was the, the dominant force that tried to make everyone look just like them. And in, in the Babylonian language, the name Babel means the gate of God. It means the gate of God. And this was the project of Babel and every other empire like it. If you want access to God, you just, you just become like us because we got the real deal. But in Hebrew, the word Babel sounds a whole lot like the word for confusion. And it just happens to drop this word at the end of the story. Empires think that they're doing the work of God by making everyone look just like them, but we know the truth. This is a parody of what God is like. Nationalism, tribalism, and it doesn't matter if you put the word Christian in front of it, has nothing to do with God. It is a false imitation of what God is about. And that is because the good news says that God is opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. His kingdom does not run on fear and scarcity, but on love, generosity, inclusion, humility. When tribalism tempts us to believe that the world would be better off if everyone were just like me, God's Spirit teaches us that diversity is a gift that reveals His beauty and protects the equality of all people. Friends, where do you need this gift today? Alright, that's what's happening. What does God do about it? What's His response to it? We see that in verses 5-7. to It says that the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they've begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let's go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. Do you hear what happens? God comes down the staircase of the ziggurat. If you're in this city, you're like, hey, it's working. (laughs) He's coming. This is what we were hoping for. Then this God begins to speak and it turns the whole story on its head. It subverts all the expectations. God says, I'm not coming down to bless. I'm coming down to intervene. I'm not coming down to endorse. I'm coming down to scatter. Because if they're capable of this, this kind of empire building, this sort of tribalism, and they're successful here, they're going to export this kind of of evil, not just in one city, but across the world. Who knows what they could unleash if somebody doesn't step in and do something about it. And so God steps in. He confuses their language and He scatters them across the the earth. And again, we can can hear this as punishment, but that's why we have to put this back in its context. We've been reading not just chapter 11, but Genesis 1-11. through And one of the things that God says from the very beginning, He says it to Adam and He says it to Noah, 
happens in Genesis 9, verse 1. God blesses Noah and his sons, and he says to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Fill the earth. Fill it. See, it's at Babel that we see that God gives humanity a push towards its original purpose. Fill the world. Cultivate it. Build new cultures. Grow in your diversity. Don't let fear and scarcity win the day. See, this tower and the uniformity of language, they destroy the unity and the diversity that God had in mind. God's actions in this city are a protection and preservation of the nations. He loves the cultural, ethnic, linguistic diversity that He planned from the start. He loves diversity. It's what He wanted all along. We see this throughout Scripture. That diversity and cultures, they're not a bad idea. God includes people of all tribes. And at the same time, He preserves those cultures and nations. They reflect His beauty and His character. Isaiah 66, the prophet, is looking ahead into the future. He's imagining a day when when God's people are going to be united under one banner. But that banner is not tribalism. He says this, I'm coming to gather all the nations in tongues, and they shall come and see My glory. And I will also take some of them as priests. Like Those far-flung nations of people that are unlike us, They're not just going to be on the outskirts. They're going to be priests at the center. They're going to be mediating your presence between me and you. Not just you to them. Like You have something to learn from these people. And he says, from new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord. See, these non-Israelite people, they come to worship. And some of them even become priests. And they come as nations with all the diversity of their languages. Nations and tongues come. And they retain their identity as nations. They don't dissolve into one gigantic Israelite world empire. Because that's never God's plan. God's kingdom doesn't run on tribalism. It runs on diversity, empowerment, generosity, inclusion. One of the central practices of God's people that the New Testament calls out over and over and over again is that we should be a people of hospitality. Did you hear that term before? The word hospitality in Greek is the word philoxenia. It's the opposite of xenophobia. Xenophobia says you have every reason to fear people that are unlike you. Philoxenia says take all of those people and love them as yourself. You have something to offer them, and they have something to offer you. We can't talk about Babel without talking about its inverse in in the New Testament. Those of you who know the story well, you'll know that just as the languages get confused at Babel, there is an event in the New Testament where people from every tribe and tongue come together and God speaks to them in their native tongue. It's called Pentecost. It's the giving of His presence. To His people. And so, um, in this moment of time, it it just so happens to be 
in a, in a festival where Jerusalem is full of people from every tribe and every tongue. And it says in, in the book of Acts that each one of them, when God's presence is given, hear the good news about Jesus in their own languages. And Peter, he gets up to explain why everyone gets to hear it this way. And he quotes Joel 2. He says this, that in the last days, God says, I will pour out My Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on My servants, both men and women, I will pour out My Spirit in those days. He's saying that the, the Spirit, the presence of God, is not confined by status, sex, or nationality. You don't need to become something you're not in order to experience the gift of My presence to you. And notice, God doesn't tear down the linguistic diversity of these people. He tears down the walls of tribalism. He unifies people in a way that preserves their cultural identity. One Spirit, many gifts. One Spirit, many languages. This is God's way of saying, this is what I bless and inhabit. This is how I always intended to work in the world. I don't require everyone to conform to my language. There isn't this heavenly tongue that I expect you all to get on board with. No, I speak your language. No matter who you are, there is room for you in my presence and I see the value of who you are and where you've come from. Your language and your story are precious to me. Family, it is our calling as people that have received the gift of this presence of God. The Spirit which birthed the church, and it, the last time I checked, we are a church, not because we meet in this building, but because we've been given the gift of God's presence. That it is our calling to manifest this reversal. To put on display what humanity looks like when people are freed from having to get their life from the idol of tribalism and the division that that causes. That our call is to manifest the beauty of a humanity that's freed from the idols of race and culture and nationality. That our call is to preview the glory of God's coming kingdom in which the diversity of all races and cultures and nations are brought together and celebrated around the throne of God. Our call, in short, is to model God's dream of Babel reversed. Being a people that reflect the beauty of a God of diversity in the way that we love each other and love the stranger that comes among us. The good news that we proclaim today is that God is opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. His kingdom does not run on fear and scarcity, but on love and inclusion and generosity and diversity. When tribalism tempts us to believe that everything would be fine if everyone were just like me. God's Spirit teaches us that diversity is a gift. A gift that reveals His beauty and protects the equality of all people. Friends, where do you need that gift today? Where do you need it? It's easy to um, kind of maybe see the big T tribalism around the world. You know, when a nation like Russia invades its neighbor under the pretense that you all are Russians anyway. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and you'll love us, right? 
Like we look at that, we're like, that's clearly the same evil at work in the world, right? We can look at the, the history of our nation and assume that, you know, maybe our founding fathers had tribalism going on in them, but, you know, we've got that sucker licked in the 21st century. In other words, it's easy to look out there and assume that tribalism exists in other people, but it doesn't exist here. And I think that's because one of the lies of tribalism is that it morphs in order to hide itself. It changes form in order to keep itself from being scattered. So it infects us in ways that we might not be aware. And I think one of the ways to to help us maybe hold up a mirror and see if Kind of like, let's take a test this morning and see how infected we are. Is to ask ourselves the question, how am I prone to the lie that the world would be better if everyone were just like me? If everyone thought like me, spoke like me, acted like me, looked like me. Are there any remnants of this ideology that, that exist in me that need to be rooted out? It could be in the, in the area of race. It could be in the area of politics. It could be in the area of, of language. You know, as, as recent as 2019, there was a bill uh, submitted to the House of Representatives to make English the official language of our country. It sounds like it would make things work so much more smoothly if everyone just spoke the same language. But ask, ask the people from Mexico if they agree. Ask the people of Sierra Leone, of Haiti, if they share that assumption with us. And we'll see if tribalism exists. Friends, the Spirit of God teaches us to denounce and confront this force, not just in the world, but in ourselves. And to say yes to the gift that God is giving to us through our brothers and sisters who look nothing like us. Where do we need this gift today? Let's pray. Father, we, um, we confess our complicity in a system that is right now shaping the world. God, we thank you for the example of your people at Pentecost, the birth of your church, that didn't insist on the world becoming like the leaders of the Jewish church in order to have access to God, but they, they laid down their necessity for everyone to look, think, act, believe like them in order to come near to Jesus. God, I pray that we would have that same ruthless determination to root out any and all tribalism that exists in our hearts, in our community, and to call it what it is when we see it in the world. God, forgive us and thank you that we're already forgiven. Heal us and thank you that we will be healed. In Jesus' name, amen.